Packer, as it is known kind of in the industry, it really um, threw the cat amongst the pigeons, absolutely. And the arrangement was that, that they would share a percentage of any damages received. That's the key bit to remember. They were going to take a percentage of the damages rather than you know a multiple. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a future Clifford Chance trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining us for a second time is one of TSL's most downloaded guests, Charles Jeffrey, Director of Litigation at Harbour, the largest privately owned litigation funder in the world. During the episode, Charles discusses the law and politics of the litigation financing world over the last 12 months. Specifically, Charles speaks about the Supreme Court decision in PACAR that ruled many litigation funding agreements unenforceable and also the UK government's vow to protect the industry due to the post office horizon scandal and the group action that was only made possible due to litigation funding. So without further ado, this is Charles Jeffrey, everybody. Welcome back to the Student Lawyer podcast, Charles. It's wonderful to um, have you back with us. Thank you for having me back. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I think it's been about a year, hasn't it? It's been, so you came on the show, um, I think, November 2022. And I haven't, I haven't checked recently, but I'm pretty sure that you are in the top three most downloaded episodes. So I'm very pleased to have you back. I'm sure the listeners are going to be even more so, um, if that's even possible. But yeah, thank you ever so much for coming back on. There's been a lot of been reported recently about litigation financing. So I thought this was a perfect time to uh, get you back on the podcast, just kind of like, yeah, speak about some of the cases and about what's been going on in the news. But before we start speaking about that, I thought it would be fun to play a game of two truths and a lie to see how well you really know your stuff. So I caught up with William Peake last week and he has been so nice. He helped me out with these questions um, I mean, who better to ask than Mr. Insolvency Law himself? So I'm going to tell you two truths and a lie. And at the end of you know, me telling them to you, you have to tell me what you think is 
the lie, and then I'll reveal I'll reveal the correct one at the end of the episode. Sounds good. Sounds good. If Mr. Pete thinks it's a good idea, then <laughs> who am I to uh, who am I to say that? Okay, number one. Parry Passu is named after the famous French insolvency lawyer who first used the mechanism. Number one. This is number two. Commi stands for centre of main interest. Number three. The Cayman Islands was the first venue for the longest case ever, longest case ever heard in the Commonwealth. Okay, there's your there's your three statements. What do you think the line is? I, I, I think Harry Passu. I can't. I mean, it's a hell of a name if it's true. And he must, yeah, he must have fun in the pub if that was his name. But I, I'm going to say Harry Passu is the lie. Okay, all right. Let's. I'll, I will reveal at the end of the episode. Okay, so let's get into the questions. Well, before we do get into the questions about litigation financing, why don't you introduce yourself and explain what your role as director of litigation at Harbour entails for all of those listeners who um, haven't caught the previous episode? Yeah, sure. So, uh, as you said, I am a director at Harbour. Harbour is the uh, largest litigation financer globally. We have... um, nearly or give or take two billion US dollars in the management and I sit within the investment team mainly focusing on origination so that is uh, bringing bringing the cases into harbour and I do that by various means but typically I'm working with lawyers and some practitioners experts counsel whoever it may be to, to originate those cases then underwrite them um, alongside my colleagues and then present those cases to our investment committee to see whether we should uh, we should be running that claim or not. Thank you for sharing that Charles it sounds like a really interesting role that you have so why don't you tell us what exactly is litigation funding? So litigation finance in short is uh, how do I put it really really plainly uh, we, we pay bills is the most straightforward way of putting it. So um, in, a, in a hypothetical scenario, if you were going to um, bring a claim against an individual, let's say um, Zoom, the hypothetical answer, you're going to sue Zoom for $100 million, that would cost you, you know, roughly $10 million to do. And that's including your legal fees, counsel, insurance, court costs, everything that you know factors in. Um, we would fund that $10 million. And as uh, if we win, uh, which hopefully we do, if our underwriting is, is correct and your case is strong enough, we will take a share of the proceeds. Uh, if we lose, then that is a risk that we have taken. And that is, um, we, we write that money off effectively. So it means that individuals um, or corporates or insolvency practitioners, whoever maybe can bring litigation, which maybe they otherwise may not have been able to through lack of financing, or it could be that um, a corporate has better ways to spend its legal budget and would rather use our money than their own. Uh, 70% of, you know, something may be better than 100% of nothing. So it's uh, more and more people are using litigation finance now for for different reasons. It's not just impecunious individuals anymore. It is um, much more broad than that. So 2023 was um, a year, the year where a Supreme Court judgment was handed down, which I'm going to say affected the litigation financing industry. You can tell me if I'm wrong there. 
The judgment is uh, are on the application of PACAR against Competition Appeal Tribunal. Would you please just explain to the listeners the background of this case, the judgment, and what it meant for litigation, the litigation funding industry, um, and then perhaps its effect on access to justice? Yeah, certainly. So PACAR, as, as it is known kind of in the industry, it really um, threw the cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I was funny enough um, seeing another funder that day for a coffee. We we're having a catch up when when the, the news broke. So it was it was an interesting time. But um, a little bit a little bit of background on the decision and the case. So in 2016, the European Commission decided that five truck manufacturing groups had engaged in anti-competitive behavior. Um, and in reliance on that decision, two applications were made to the CAT, which is a competition appeal tribunal, under Section 47B of the Competition Act, to continue follow-on collective proceedings. So um, one application was made by a trade body, which was the Road Haulage Association, and the other was uh, a vehicle incorporated for the purpose of bringing the claim, which is uh, UK Truck Claims Limited, I believe. So the, the proceedings were funded um, by uh, litigation financer or financers, um, and the arrangement was that that they would share a percentage of any damages received. That's the key bit to remember. They were going to take a percentage of the damages, rather than you know a multiple. So the the, the truck manufacturers they objected to the tribunal um, on the grounds that funding agreements were DBAs, damage-based agreements. Um, and that did not comply with uh, the regulations. And so actually the funding agreements were unenforceable. This then went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court found um, in favor of that decision, uh, four to one, I think it was, uh, which meant that uh, effectively litigation funding agreements were in fact DBAs, therefore not allowed uh, in the CAT and it really, it really shook uh, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of funders up because a lot of people were, were weren't expecting that decision. Um, so it, it meant for the industry that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of litigation funding agreements out there where your the, the the fee for the funder is a percentage of the damages that could potentially now be unenforceable. So you had a, a lot of funders uh, and claimants uh, and lawyers trying to amend existing funding agreements to make them compliable with the regulations. It meant a lot of funders had to do quite a bit of kind of KYC because there there are scenarios or stories or where claimants who were being funded or had been funded by a litigation financer were turning around and saying, well, actually, the agreement's unenforceable, so you're not entitled to your share of the proceeds. So it's um, it was a very, very busy time. Um, I, I think pretty much all litigation funders were affected in one way or another. But I know, uh, I, I mean, I imagine the, the, the market is very sophisticated. I think a lot of people, a lot of funders were, were prepared for the worst, uh, as you always should be. So it, it, it meant a, a, a lot of the back work had already gone in to maybe damage limitation, but it was, it was a really, really busy time. It's affected a lot of people. And you know, now a lot of work is going in to 
amending kind of the DBA regulations. Uh, and there have been some positive judgments in, in recent cases uh, to support litigation funding um, and the access to justice that it provides because a lot of these cases would never have been brought uh, had it not been for litigation financing. So thankfully, um, the, 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 the market and judges and the courts have not um, painted us all with this brush of, oh, you awful, awful people. It's been very um, proactive. And, and you look at the work that you know, Susan Dunn, Neil Perslow, uh, et cetera, have done with ALF and ILFA, which are the um, Association of Litigation Finances. They've been in huge, huge amounts of work to helping funders, helping the market in moving forward post this, uh, this decision. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. Thank you for explaining that. We're going to discuss in more detail, you know, the access to justice um, aspect and the positive cases that have recently been, um, well, recently involved litigation funding. But just talking a little bit more about this case, I understand that um, part of the judgment was to prevent frivolous claims uh, being made. And something to do with conflict of interest could arise out of um the issue that was brought with PACAR, what exactly is or would be considered a frivolous claim where a conflict of interest could arise? Yeah, it's an interesting point. So, I mean, I, I've been, despite my baby face, I've been funding for nearly a decade now. And even you know, 10 years ago, people were talking about how funders can bring frivolous litigation. And it's something that I've just never really understood you know, I don't go to the Gold Cup and put a million dollars on a 500 to one horse. Why would anybody do that? You know, funders, we, we, we wouldn't back a case for the sake of it. We wouldn't back a case to be spiteful to somebody. You know, we are managing uh, investors' money and our job is to provide a return on that money by making sophisticated uh, and educated decisions and investments why on earth we would ever just bring litigation for the sake of it, um, I, I have no idea. And on the conflict of interest point, you know, a, a lot of people, or, or a common misconception is that funders will control the litigation. Um, they will dictate how the case is ran. Uh, they will dictate settlements. They will run the show effectively and ultimately, therefore, causing a conflict of interest because are you acting in the best interest of the claimant or are you acting in the best interest of your investors? Funders have absolutely zero control 
over the course of uh, a funded case. We, um, you know, when, when we are underwriting a case, we assess the risks involved. Um, we have, you know, teams of very, very qualified, uh, highly qualified and sophisticated lawyers who will help manage a case throughout its life cycle. You know, whenever we're, we're running a case, we receive a monthly report from um, the claimant lawyers saying this is this is what we've done this month, this is what we do next month, this is how the case is going. We can provide some input on what we think might be helpful, uh, but we can't turn around and say, well, actually, you know, you've got to do this. You know, we, we are not the client. We are the uh, investing in the case. The, the lawyer's client could be the, the, the corporate or the insolvency practitioner or whoever it may be. Uh, it, it is not us. So a, a conflict won't, uh, a conflict shouldn't arise in that instance because we we don't control litigation um, and we we don't back cases for the sake of it. Thank you for explaining that. So it's been in the news recently. Um, well, the the uh, post office scandal been in the news recently. Even though I believe that the judgment was handed down in two thousand nineteen or something like that. But yeah, there's been, as you said, positive press and decisions about the litigation financing industry off the back of this case. Could you explain why after six months of um, PACAR and January 2024, where um, the sub-postmasters, I'm not really too sure exactly what happened in January, um, but yeah, all this positive press came out about litigation financing. So could you explain why after those short six months, the government has decided to reverse the Supreme Court judgment at the next chance it gets? Yeah, the, the, the post office um, show was interesting. I actually hadn't seen it. And then my mother phoned me uh, and was saying, oh, was that you? Is, I get it now. I understand how it works. Um, they were talking about these investors coming in. So it was it was interesting um, that the uh, funders were, were, were put in the program like that. It was it was it was great. I mean, if it, if it were me, I would have wanted you know, someone like Liam Hemsworth to have played me, but I, I unfortunately had yeah, I didn't fund it. Nor did we have. Doesn't sound like you thought about this at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was good for the industry in that in that regard because it showed that obviously. The difficulties that some groups or individuals have in bringing litigation, and had it not been for um, a funder, you know, the, the, the postmasters would have would have ultimately run out of cash and not been able to, to bring that claim. So that was, that was positive in that regard. The, the government is looking heavily at the the decision um, and the reform to the DBA regulations. Ultimately, it's something that's completely out of our control, and and as I said earlier, it's something that. You know, Susan Dunn um, and and her team at Alf are working heavily on. So hopefully, you know, it 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 gets overturned, or there are amendments or something that can be done, uh, which will help you know, continue to bring proceedings. And it, it's not like the, the the litigation finance industry has stopped as a result of this decision. Um, it's meant that the way we conduct business has changed, and it's meant that. Some cases have had to be altered slightly in the way in which they're financed, but it it hasn't had, uh, you know, it hasn't it hasn't put us all out of work or it hasn't stopped the industry. So we'll we'll see what happens, um, what the the government decides to do, um, and we will we will act accordingly as to to whatever happens. But I think we're all just kind of sat waiting uh, to see what what will come forward. But fingers crossed. I'm sure it will be the outcome that you want and what is right. Um, so I look forward to seeing what happens in the next year or so. So Charles, tell us, how can student lawyers become litigation funders? 
That's a great question. I think you know, um, it, it, there's various different roads, I should say, into becoming a, a, a funder. So some funders offer training contracts. Here at Harbour, we, we have offered them in the past. Um, we've had some very, very successful individuals come through. And I think there are a couple of other funders that, that offer the same. But don't don't quote me on that. Um, another way to do it is is, is internships. Now, a lot of funders will will take on summer interns, winter interns, um, come see how it works, try and get an understanding of it because it is different to private practice. You'll you, you're going to see a lot of cases, a lot of different types of cases, different jurisdictions. So there's a chance to to learn a lot. Um, and the way that you look at a case is different to how you look at it in private practice. We say, you know, when, when you know, a lot of people that join us come from private practice and they come from all, you know, all different areas um, of law and different uh, countries. But, you know, when you're underwriting a case for funding, if you underwrite it as a lawyer, you probably never invest in anything. Um, you, know, you, you, you underwrite as a fund manager. You know, you're not just looking at the merits, you're looking at recovery, you're looking at economics, you're looking at budgets, you're looking at everything possible that could go right or wrong with, with a case. So counterparty risk is another one. You know, that, that's not something that maybe you think too heavily about when you're working on a case in private practice. So there's a lot that goes into it. So uh, I, I would say, you know, pick up the phone, um, drop an email to, to a funder. Say you want to come in and, 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 and shadow and have a chat with people. Um, go grab a coffee, grab a beer, have, have you know, meet individuals. And, you know, if you go through the private practice route and you qualify, um, you know, we get a lot of people that come to us who um, maybe don't want to be a partner. They, they don't want to work um, ridiculous hours all throughout the night and weekends. You know, Good thing about being at a funder is there is a lot more work-life balance. Now, more often than not, you come in at nine, you leave at six, seven o'clock. Um, there's not huge, huge volumes of work to do at home. You know, that there's never anything, or there is sometimes, but not often that urgent that you have to, you know, be working at eleven p.m. at night. It, it's a, it's slightly different way of life to to being uh, in private practice. So, I would say. Uh, if you can go and qualify in private practice and get that experience, uh, brilliant. You absolutely should. Um, if you can get a, a training contract at a funder, brilliant. You know, you absolutely should. There's loads of different ways in um, to, to the market. So just go in eyes wide open, to be honest, um, because it, it is different, as I say, to private practice. They, they don't teach you when you're doing your LPC about how to be a, a funder. They teach you how to um, review the merits and, and be a lawyer. So just be prepared that it is slightly different. It's a different way of life, but um, I mean, I certainly would never, would never want to go back to private practice. That's good for me to know. She said about starting a training contract. No, I think that litigation funding sounds like a really interesting career. I think that the the culture in funders seems like a great place to be at. Um, and yeah, I would think that it's a very fulfilling career as well. So thank you for um, for coming on the show and talking about litigation financing again, and just really helping to open the eyes of aspiring lawyers and showing them that it's not just a solicitor or barrister route. Um, there's many more um, careers that you can have with a law degree. So yeah, thank you ever so much. Now. 
I've come to the end of my questions. So um, there's really just one thing left to do, and that is to reveal the the lie of the two truths and the lie game that we started at the beginning of the episode. I gave three statements. One of them was a lie and two are truths. So the first one was Paris Passu is named after the famous French insolvency lawyer who first used the mechanism. Now, Charles, you said that one was a lie. Um, the other two was... Uh, Commie stands for centre of main interests. And the other uh, third statement is the Cayman Island was the venue for the longest case ever heard in the Commonwealth. Are you positive you want to stick with your decision, Charles, Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I, I misheard, I think, your, your, the second one. I thought you were going on about the font. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, no, I'm going to stick with my original decision. Right. Well, Harry Passu is named after the famous French insolvency lawyer who first used the mechanism. That is, in fact, a lie. So you were correct there. And I believe you may have been the first person to ever got um, the two truths and a lie game correct. <laughs> out of all the people I've ever asked, out of the entire three people I've ever asked. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I'll put it. So not only are you um, one of the top ranking, but you can also take the uh, gold medal for um, two truth and a lie in some of the version. Now, I hope that you put that on the LinkedIn next to your were, top yeah. hundred dragons. Um, but no, thank you for coming on the Shoot podcast once again and for talking to us about this occasion one day. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you for everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Shoot My podcast and we'll see you back again here next time. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.